Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello, everybody. This is Betsy Wurzel, host of Chatting with Betsy. On passionate world talk radio. Jeannie White is station manager and writes the blog. I suggest you read it for important information. And Lillian Caldwell is the CEO. And I want to thank you two ladies for a wonderful job that you do. You're going to want to stay tuned to this podcast, folks, because I have on a special guest. You want to know about drug research? Do you want to know about why there is disparities among minorities? And yes, I will stir the pot because that's what I do in chatting with Betsy. I will talk about the taboo. I want to welcome back my special guest, Mika Pollock, who is executive director of Safest Drug. Thanks for coming back, Mika. Thanks for having me back, Betsy. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to chatting with you today. Oh, you're welcome. Let's get uh, just right to it. Can you just say a little bit about your company uh, for people who might not have heard the first podcast of what your company does? Absolutely. So Safest Drug is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that was founded in early 2019 to prevent and alleviate medication-related illness, disability, and death in the U.S. with education, research, and advocacy work. Um, We also refer to this public health issue as medication harm. And um, we're just getting started. We're barely two years old, but we've been able to really expand our volunteer workforce, and we have so much exciting work coming up ahead and that we're actually working on at the moment. That's great. And I want to tell the audience, go on, and Amika will give it later, and it'll be in the blog. Go on her website, the company website, because they do free webinars. I went to one. It was, what, maybe two or three weeks ago, Mika? Yeah. On medications? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. I mean, excellent information. And if, especially if you have, you know, you're welcome, you know, children, adults even, overdose of medications, um, poisons in the home, go on the website and also look and see if there's research being done that you could volunteer to do. I'm really interested in research. And I know that there's disparities among minorities with research. Is that improving, Mika? Um, I would say the short answer is no. Um, and, and part of the reason why I, you know, 
provide that type of answers because um, just even this recently in the last three or four months, um, Safest Drug took uh, a, an opportunity to look at the new or the novel medicines, as they call it, brand new drugs, never on the U.S. market ever before, um, that were approved by the U.S. FDA. And we were disappointed, but not surprised. And we were disappointed because between January and June of this year alone, 2020, um, there were at least 20 new drugs that were approved by the FDA, but only one of them actually had um, reasonable, um, I guess, judgment or confirmation that there were no you know, differences among race and ethnic groups based on the subjects participating in the trial. So we're still seeing that there are issues. And you can even look back in 2019 and 2018, but we just haven't come far enough yet. And I say yet because I think that, you know, never before in our country, I feel like in recent years, have we been so focused on eliminating racial inequities. And I think many different people across many different sectors, um, from healthcare, the research, to economics, um, housing, are looking at how can we make things better for everyone who lives in this country. Yes, you know what, I, I have to say this. <clears throat> to be honest, I did not know that there would be a difference in how a Caucasian person could react to a medication versus an African-American versus someone who's Asian until I heard a friend of mine uh, say on her show that there is a difference, you know, in the chromosomes and in the genetic makeup of different races. And that never really occurred to me that yeah, I mean, there's, you know, a difference. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, it, there's, there's debate on many different sides of that particular topic, honestly, Betsy, because on the one hand, you know, folks who study the human genome, our genetics, understand that there could be similarities in terms of who's expressing genes in their DNA um, across race and ethnic groups. But yet there's lots of variability within racial groups, race and ethnic groups as well that we need to pay attention to. Um, and so it doesn't mean that every particular drug has some kind of racial and ethnic difference, but there's definitely been tons of research to prove and to share findings around the race and ethnic differences right down to the genetic code. And Mika, why do you think there are still disparities? Do you think that people, companies don't reach out to minorities or because they might be in urban areas and maybe they don't have access to go to a lab? and do research, mm. what's your opinion? You know, I have an opinion, in my opinion, also I feel like it's kind of based on observation, direct observation from working in the clinical trial world. Um, but my opinion is that I think that um, it's, it's multifactorial. So there's many different reasons why. Um, so I'm looking at, for example, um, a research um, paper that was done by the NIH where they talked about some reasons behind that. And I agree with much of this. Um, so, for example, they mentioned there's an unwillingness to participate. So these, you know, different minorities, um, blacks, Latinos, Asians, may be reluctant to participate due to lack of trust. 
um, there could be a lack of opportunity um, in actually being invited to participate in a trial. And there could even be medical ineligibility. So when, when I worked on these clinical trials and, and all these clinical trials that are going on, not just for you know, what we all hear about right now, which is the COVID-19 vaccine trials, but all research, drug development, there's always these inclusion criteria and these exclusion criteria, which means that there's this long list that the study protocol developers put together and say, here are the people that we're willing to bring into the trial because this is who we want to really help and treat based on the drug and its indication. And here are the people who, if they fit these criteria, criterion, they're actually excluded. So this is exclusion criteria. And so, you know, some folks are just medically ineligible for that reason. Um, there are also other reasons that I was able to see up close and personal clinical trial operations that also lead to this. So some folks may have a difficulty participating because they don't have an ability to travel from their home to the actual study site. Um, and when you enroll in these studies, at least the ones that I was on, it wasn't uncommon that, you know, maybe once a month you're getting the study drug dose. So you have to go to the research center, the clinical office, get the drug, go back home, and some folks may lack transportation. Um, but I think that it's really kind of a social dynamic issue. There's many different factors that make, I think, ethnic minorities in this country at a disadvantage. And they're really social in nature, but they're also economic in nature. And I think that we haven't really quite addressed that really very well, particularly when it comes to clinical trial subject representation. Very interesting. I, I know myself, I was going to, I filled out a questionnaire for chronic cough. <laughs> I happened to see it on Facebook Messenger. I saw, let me, you know, fill out the questionnaire. I didn't say where it was. Then I found out it's like an hour and a half away from me. And that's, you know, way too far. But that, um, you know, I could see that as a problem with, you know, all <laughs> ethnic uh, groups, uh, oh, yeah. travel, you know, transportation, the cost of transportation. I would like to see, like, people who have local research going on that can make it easier for someone to travel. Many years ago, it's probably at least, oh, probably over 20 years ago, there was a doctor's office, not too far from me, who was doing clinical research. I went for mm -hmm. migraine uh, research. And it was, you know, close enough that I could go. And I, I would like to see that type of situation. Or if maybe a company can go into like a community center, a local community center. No, they can't do it now because of COVID. And they can attract uh, people because it would be, you know, maybe downtown somewhere easy to be um, accessible. Mm. You know, honestly, that's uh, the I think is a great idea. I will say that I've also worked on clinical trials where, you know, we make sure there was money in the budget so that we can give people um, stipends or credit cards, um, gift cards, um, so they can, you know, have their travel covered or we'll arrange like Lyft or Uber services or something like that. So I think the industry is kind of understands that travel can be a limitation for some people and they're willing to kind of pay and help make that better. 
but it still doesn't take away from the fact that people just aren't even being invited. Um, so, for example, one thing that I learned was that when we have these clinical research studies, we recruit principal investigators, and usually these are folks who are doctors, and they are recruiting patients at their clinical site for the clinical trial based on very specific protocol and research agreements. And those physicians and their team are responsible for vetting their patient population and inviting people. Um, one thing that we overwhelmingly would see is that most, a lot of these investor, investigators would majority be, you know, white individuals, and they were bringing in majority white subjects. Um, there has been some studies and some evidence to show that if you bring in diverse researchers, you'll also likely bring in diverse populations. Um, and so that's also another potential solution is to make sure that, you know, you have more Asian, Black, Latino, principal investigator, clinicians who may also be surveying um, a good deal of those populations in their clinical practice. Um, but it, it's just one, one of many different challenges around this particular issue. That's a great idea. Have the different clinicians, doctors of different ethnic backgrounds doing research. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times people um, may feel com more comfortable going to someone who is the same ethnic background, that mm -hmm. talks the same language, understands their culture, and Absolutely. that could, you know, bring in uh, more uh, people to do research. You know, you take an area like where I live, New Jersey, New Jersey, New York. It's such a diverse community. I mean, I live in a small town, but even in my immediate area, the diversity is huge. We have a large Asian Indian community. We have mm -hmm. a large African American community, um, Chinese. And if these clinicians would reach out to, uh, you know, the, the ethnic backgrounds that aren't getting researched on, I mean, they could, and I think it would be easier. I mean, there's a lot of people. I mean, I know, like, culture-wise, because I've been told this, uh, for instance, like, an Indian or Muslim woman are more comfortable with a woman doctor. Mm -hmm. And a woman doctor, hopefully, in, in the same culture. Like, they won't go to a man doctor, a male doctor. Right. So these, you know, are the things that need to be considered, I think, when they do research. Absolutely. They have to consider that. And I think, honestly, when we think about or when we look at the data around how is research funded in the U.S., right, overwhelmingly pharmaceutical companies are the funders. They use their money to research and develop drugs. And so, you know, I don't know about you, but if I have my money in my bank account, no one's going to tell me how to spend my money but me, right? So they right. have quite the control over making those decisions in terms of how they're going to spend it. And recruitment is a, is a big, big thing. I mean, but what drives that is the fact that these companies tend to want to do these trials as soon as possible. So it may take longer, for example, to bring in, you know, really great diversity when it comes to racial minorities. But 
maybe it just it doesn't fit within the time frame of how soon they want to get that drug on the market. So instead of us researching this drug and recruiting for a year, in order to really get the numbers that would be ideal and representative, it's going to take two years. And because the regulatory laws in this country federally and overseen by the FDA don't require for a lot of these private pharma companies to ensure they have representation, then it usually doesn't happen. And I think that's probably the biggest barrier because even in cases where we've seen or we can see where someone does identify, you know, some patients who are more diverse to bring them in the study, there could still be issues there. Um, for example, years ago, I worked on this study um, where we had one particular researcher out of Boston, and this particular drug that we were researching, um, we knew that this particular condition, this disease, impacted more black women than other types of women. And so, therefore, we knew we wanted to have more, you know, representation of black African-American subjects. This particular research in Boston said, hey, I have like five or six, you know, but the issue is they're all Haitian and um, we need the informed consent form to be translated into Creole. And so I thought, wow, what an opportunity. He can bring in five additional, you know, women of color into this study. That's awesome because we're just scrambling for just one for the month. He can bring in five. This is wonderful. And it turns out that even despite my advocacy, as a black woman, and my counterpart at the pharmaceutical company who was Asian, and both of us advocating for this, the higher-uppers denied it. Um, they said, no, we don't want to spend the additional $15,000 to translate this important consent. Let's just move on. And I remember just feeling like it was like a punch to the gut. It's like, you know, so it's not enough that we have the right researcher in. We find the patients. We make them eligible. We can see they're eligible. They're great candidates for this but it also takes pharmaceutical companies to agree to pay and accommodate and be willing to do that. When you I love talking to you, Mika. <laughs> I just love talking to you because it's so informative and interesting because, you know, it, what I'm getting is it starts in the pharmaceutical companies, right? They want their drugs um, tested so they get to decide what doctors clinicians do it who their subjects are is that correct that's correct and so the pharmaceutical companies i guess need to start having a diverse mindset in their clinical research and maybe you know have their CEOs be diverse because I mean this is, I know this is gonna open up a can of worms I'm Caucasian okay I just want to let people know that I'm Caucasian and I think that research has to be done among all ethnic backgrounds to see how medications work mm -hmm. and the pharmaceutical CEOs better open up their eyes, and I don't care what color they are, what ethnic background they're from, they better get, you know, on the stick, as they say, and start <laughs> doing this. Because, you know, as the U.S. Uh, expands, you know, there's many, many 
different ethnic groups here. We're a melting pot. It's not just all 100% Caucasian. And they really need to broaden their horizons. So I get on my soapbox because it's not right. No, it's not um, right. You're right. That, and I feel like if you think about it, <laughs> in, in, the, in the raw sense of it all, it's almost as if the question is, is the U.S. a country where we only develop medicines that have been proven to be safe and effective for white people? And, and to me, that opens up a whole can of worms in terms of bioethics um, and really looking at equity from a very different lens because, you know, you know this, we all get sick. We all have right. um, health conditions. When we looked at the 20 new drugs earlier this year approved by the FDA, you know, we were kind of stumped to see that there were literally medicines that were approved for very common conditions that all of us may, you know, experience from breast cancer to malaria to even post-operative nausea and vomiting. You know, everybody experiences that. So why in the world would you, would there ever be an allowance of a trial to be pushed through to the FDA for review and approval and then actually approve. So this is not just, you know, the pharma companies, you know, making all this happen on their own. The FDA is also approving this. Um, We have to look at the whole system and think about all the stakeholders who can touch this. And I will tell you that one strategy, if you Google this issue, and you'll see this often, the number one strategy that people like to push out there, particularly from the industry, is that, hey, minority groups, you've got to sign up. Come on, you can do it. And that strategy has been a strategy for many years and is ineffective. The proof is in the data. And, I, again, I challenge anyone who wants to say that's the number one strategy because you can't just walk up on a study and say, put me on it, okay? So the onus is really on the people who's conducting the trial. That's my point. And I, I hope that the FDA is also one day to up their standards, which I think sometimes they do that, honestly, Betsy. I've seen um, FDA approval letters where they'll actually put it out there in their approval letter. We approve this, but it's contingent on the fact you need to do this research study here for the next six years because you didn't really prove too much in this area, um, whether it's a race issue, ethnic issue, or gender, or age. Um, and so they do hold pharma companies to the fire, but they still give them co- approval. And so we have to say, wait, you can't have any approval, right, until you have all of these areas met. And we feel 100% confident that no one's going to die or get sicker because of this new drug. Wow. So if anyone from pharmaceutical companies happens to hear this show, <laughs> you need to start broadening your your horizons. I mean, this is going to be 2021, um, you know, as they say, get with the program. And that's really interesting. I also want to talk about, Mika, the, and this will open up a can of worms, uh, the COVID <laughs> vaccination. I mean, I know they're doing a clinical trial at my local hospital, which I will not myself uh, not go to, um, not just because of research, it's the hospital that Matt died at, so I don't even want to go in there. But, um, you know, so it's in the paper. So people see it, whoever reads the paper anymore, I'm one of those old timers that do. <laughs> and, you know, it's probably on the computer too. 
uh, email or e-read, whatever you call it. So are they testing, researching minorities for this COVID-19 vaccine? So, and you, you've probably seen some of them on the television or even in the newspaper, but, you know, the conversation thankfully has come up. Like, are we recruiting diverse populations, which I was really excited to see that conversation come up more than once um, since our country really kind of buckled under this, you know, COVID-19 um, pandemic. And I will say that in um, preparation for our talk today, I did go online to look at the clinical trials that have been registered um, on a public-facing website called clinicaltrials.gov. And so this website's been around for many years, and basically it's where all clinical trials, particularly in the U.S., go to register. You just say, hey, here's our study information. And so anyone can go on there and look and find study information. Um, it's not in the most user-friendly thing fashion, um, but, you know, I've been on studies where we registered our study, so I'm very comfortable with it. But when we did our search, and we're kind of still ongoing in our, our look on this, that's safe drug, Betsy, just FYI. But when we did our search on anything related to COVID, um, we saw there were 836 studies um, in the system. 53 of those studies were completed, but only two of them had results. And one of them was the NIH um, study um, that compared the placebo to remdesivir. And I thought this was kind of interesting because I was specifically interested in the fact that, you know, here it is, it has the government attached to it. Um, we all are familiar with Dr. Anthony Fauci, right? So if Dr. Anthony Fauci right. is attached to something, we want to see what's happening. And so I was very intrigued by this one. And what I found was um, in the demographic data, so when we look at diversity, we don't sometimes only look at race and ethnicity. We look at age diversity and even diversity with regards to gender. So with regards to um, gender, uh, we saw that it was definitely more skewed towards men. Um, there were about 189 women in both the placebo and the remdesivir um, arms that had participated in the trial versus 352 and 332 men. So clearly more men participated in this trial with the NIH. Um, with regards to age diversity, not a surprise here, but I didn't think it was a horrible figure. Um, when it comes to age 18 to 20, 18 to 65 subjects, um, we saw that from the placebo group, there are about 324 people versus 354 in the remdesivir, so pretty equal. But in the age 65 and older, there was 197 for placebo and 187 for remdesivir, which I thought was actually pretty good numbers for that age group. And then lastly, what we saw with regards to race and ethnicity, um, we saw what we expected, um, which is majority white enrollment, but there were some significant numbers in other racial minority areas. So in terms of white enrollment, it was 279 to 281 when comparing the placebo to the remdesivir group. Um, black population, I guess self-identified black um, population, 109 versus 117, and then Asians, um, 79 versus 56. Now, there were other groups as well, people who answer um, um, one or more races or folks who say, you know, this list is unknown. 
um, but those numbers are really low. And those were the these the white, black, and Asian were the main categories or main um, representations with regards to race and ethnicity. Okay, here's the million dollar question, Mika. <laughs> do you <laughs> feel that <laughs> do you feel that the COVID vaccine actually the two part question would be ready to go in two thousand twenty one and do you feel it's safe? You know, honestly, Betsy, I am very, very on the fence. And I'm gonna tell you I'm saying this as not only, you know, a woman of color, I'm saying it as a mom to two kids, I'm saying it as, you know, a daughter to someone who's over 65. Uh, I'm saying this also as someone who's worked behind the scenes of clinical research. And I think what's really driving me towards being on the fence is because I know from working on these clinical trials that lots of things can happen and go wrong, and those things never make it to the public. And so I don't know how well operated the trial was. Um, we don't know, for example, how many, um, and, if, it, and if the data is actually on the clinicaltrials.gov website, we're still analyzing it. But one thing I would be curious to know is, you know, how many serious versus non-serious adverse events were actually presented and what were those in the different study arm groups, right? Um, I will say that as someone who's also worked in research is that, you know, not everything may make it um, to the public in the sense that, for example, it's not uncommon that we enroll a subject in a clinical trial and then maybe it's determined based on their labs, based on what we're seeing, or based on an adverse event that, you know what, let's take that person out. Or we determine that we need to change our criteria. So it, it could be things that we just don't see, we don't know. It may not be a lot of that, but what it is, we don't know. Um, I will say that for folks who are, you know, concerned or afraid about taking this vaccine, you're not alone. There are definitely even people in healthcare who are a little intrepidatious about it. But um, I think it's one of those things where there will be people who decide, hey, I don't care what comes out, I'm taking it. And I think we all need to pay attention to the data the safety data that comes out from that experience. Um, my hope is that everyone who does take the vaccine, um, we can have some degree of monitoring and detection on their health, um, and people can report that, um, which is a huge issue in this country too, Betsy. I think you and I may have talked about that maybe offline, but you know, here in America, it's not required for a healthcare provider to report to the FDA when their patient has an issue with the drug. And the only way the FDA can, you know, unleash their regulatory power and determine it's a safety issue, they need information, they need reports. So I would just say for anyone who is going to take it, make sure you pay attention to your body um, and report anything that feels concerning, um, whether it's confirmed by your doctor or you suspect it, report it. Because the FDA pulls all that data in um, and they make determinations, they call them safety signals, to say, wait a minute, looks like we have 5,000 people saying this. We see an association. We have to launch an investigation. So if you do take it, pay attention to your body and report anything that's concerning or suspicious. Thank you, uh, Mika, for that advice, and I totally agree. I, I, I myself personally will not take it, and 
definitely if someone does want to take it, yes, report to your doctor. And I know myself, Mika, with medications that I have reported side effects and the doctors ignore what you say, especially mm-hmm. if you're a female. And, you know, then you come to find out later on this drug was taken off the market because of what you complained about. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to tell the listeners, listen to Mika, listen to me. Your body will tell you. So listen to your body. And even if your doctor says, oh, it's nothing, call the FDA and report it. Go to Mika's company <laughs> and report That's it. Right. Yes. And, and we have tons of resources, and we're willing to help people with the reporting. Um, the other thing I will say around that, though, Betsy, is um, another, I want to say almost a myth, right, is that if the side effect or the potential safety risk is not on the label, then it means that what you're experiencing, it can't possibly be, and that's just not the case. Um, every medication on the market, whether it's been on the market for a year or 15 years, comes with known and unknown potential safety risk. And so that's why we have to tell people, we have to report it. Those reports need to get to the FDA because that's really the central repository for paying attention to these safety signals. Um, So I always tell people, you know, read the label, pay attention to the risk. But if you see something or if you experience something that's not on there, it doesn't mean it's not there because that's what we hear a lot from a lot of patients and consumers who contact Safer's Drug and we talk with them. They may have raised an issue, and their clinician may say, well, no, that drug doesn't cause that. And they're, like, just kind of, like, brushed off, and they feel brushed off. Um, and right. It's made. But that's why those reports are so important, because we need to uncover new pieces of information. Um, another thing I will say is that when the FDA approves these drugs, whether it's the COVID vaccine or any drug, for that matter, we don't always know 100% where the safety profile is. We call it the safety profile, like exactly how truly safe it is for all populations that are going to get exposed to it. Don't forget, in the clinical trial world, we carefully select, highly select, who gets exposure to the drug. In the real world, after the FDA gets this drug approved, or the pharma company gets FDA approved, then all kinds of patients who may not have ever fit our criteria criteria are then exposed to the drug. Um, and so you get to see new things that we may not have seen in the clinical trial world, which also comes with people being all over you, looking at your lab, looking at your blood work, jotting this stuff down. We don't see that in the real world. You know, is your doctor or your nurse calling you every other week? Hey, Betsy, you took that new drug. Tell me this. Fill out this questionnaire. Come in for blood work. You normally don't see that. And so we need people to always talk about how they're feeling and what they're experiencing after they take a drug, particularly for the first time your body's ever been exposed to the drug. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I had to say to my rheumatologist, this is a few years ago, with muscle relaxers. I mean, I couldn't take a whole one. I take a quarter of one and it knocked me out for two days. And she's mm-hmm. telling me, oh, we can't do that. And I said, well, I'm telling you, it does that for me. This mm-hmm. is me. I'm very sensitive. And, you know, the most I, I have found in my experience that doctors just, you know, brush you off. But definitely, um, 
I say proceed with caution. <laughs> Take it your own yeah. risk. Yes. Um, do you think it would be out? Do you think the COVID nineteen vaccine? Do you think the COVID vaccine will be out by next year? I think it will. It sounds like it will. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hearing even talk about you know vials of vaccine being ready as soon as in December of this year. Um, now, how implemented it will be in various states and at the local level, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure they're going to have something. It sounds like they're heading very well in the direction. Well, thank you, Mika, for coming on. I so enjoyed talking to you. You're a wealth of information, and I would like for you to tell the listeners where they can, and it will be in the blog, so that's why I have to read the blog, people, um, information on <laughs> where they could contact you and Safest Drug. And I would check it out, listeners. Thank you so much, Betsy, and thank you for having me on again Welcome. for the second time. I'm always You're going welcome. to come on and speak with you and your audience. Um, anyone's interested in learning more about our organization, you can visit us at www.safestdrug.org. Um, we're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Drug, all one word. And um, we would love to hear from people, um, particularly with regards to their medication experiences. And one thing that I love about our website, and we're going to continue to develop this over time, so we actually have a resources page. There's a wealth of links on there, both FDA-related and not, for those who are, you know, taking medication on a regular basis um, or just taking it every now and then, um, particularly if you're a caregiver or if you have young children. Um, definitely educate yourself. Be proactive. Um, we also have a number of free online events coming up, as you mentioned, Betsy. The next one coming up is actually a movie screening on December 1st going to be available online. Um, and lastly but not least, something you mentioned about even your medication sensitivities um, and this topic in general and why, you know, racial minority representation in clinical trials is so important is in the genetic factor here. Um, we all are unique individuals and a medication may act very different for me versus you, Betsy. And so in that vein, to take drugs is proud to um, start a new program and initiative, which we're calling Pharmaco Genetic Testing Support. So if you've never had a test, um, we are more than happy to help people get tested. Um, and we're trying to get thousands of people tested all over the country so they can be more informed. Um, this is really great for people in particular who are more than four or five medications, high medication consumers, um, also, individuals with a prior history of medication issues, um, particularly if you had an adverse drug reaction that landed you in the hospital. So check it out, visit our website, and we're more than happy to help. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Mika. Folks, if you missed any of this podcast, I would, or even after you listen to it, you want to listen to it again because of the great information. I am on Apple, Google, Amazon Music, wherever you hear podcasts, you will hear Chatting with Betsy. And I can't thank you enough, Mika, for coming on, sharing this information. Folks, thank you. In a world where you could be anything, will you please be kind? Just be kind humans to each other. 
and, you know, be safe and just, you know, it's, it's just sometimes I get so overwhelmed. You know, I mean, I'm in New Jersey. People are always in a rush. They'll run you right over. Just chillax. That's what I used to tell my school kids. <laughs> you know, just chillax, chill and relax. Wherever you're going isn't going anywhere. Um, you know, the, your employer, the building, the shopping center, the store, it's not going anywhere. You don't have to cut people off in lanes of traffic to get there. Mm-hmm. Be safe. Be kind. And be patient with your fellow human beings because everyone's fighting a battle and you don't know what it is. So that's what I have to say. Until we chat again, this is Betsy Wurzel, host of Chatting with Betsy on Passionate World Talk Radio. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast.